Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ellen Katz. Ellen is an Assistant Director of Licensing and Innovation Ventures at the University of California at San Francisco, also known as UCSF. At UCSF, Ellen is responsible for sourcing and completing high-value deals for UCSF's most commercially attractive technologies. In addition to helping bring UCSF's innovation from bench to bedside, Ellen manages a large and diverse IP portfolio, advises faculty and staff on IP strategy, and negotiates intellectual property terms for large-scale industry collaborations. Ellen has been managing intellectual property on behalf of UCSF since February 2007, when she initially joined the Office of Technology Management. Over these years, Ellen has completed a wide range of partnering deals and played critical roles in the formation of many UCSF startups, which have gone on to have successful IPOs or acquisitions. Ellen holds a PhD in biomedical science from UC San Diego, as well as a BA in molecular and cellular biology from UC Berkeley. Her scientific background is strongest in molecular and cellular biology, cancer biology, and human and yeast genetics. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Ellen. It's my pleasure, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks again for taking part in the podcast. And generally, the way I like to start these off is asking people about their journey to tech transfer. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and ultimately how you got into tech transfer and ultimately ended up at UCSF? Absolutely. Uh, As I often tell people, I'm a recovering scientist by training. I received my PhD in biomedical sciences at UC San Diego, and the journey really started there because I realized fairly early on in my career that staying at the bench wasn't really the best use of my skill sets. So I took some additional courses through UC Extension, um, and I joined a consulting firm that was started by some of my classmates in order to expose myself to different kinds of projects that bridged science and business. And one of their clients happened to have done a lot of work with tech transfer offices, which was how I first learned about tech transfer as a career option. As you can imagine, that was not really something that I was exposed to as a grad student. So once I defended my dissertation and went on the job market, I basically just got lucky in that the UC system was decentralizing, uh, which meant that the OTM was getting an influx of a lot of cases coming over from UCOP, and they were hiring to fill some new entry-level positions, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Wow, and it sounds like you must really enjoy it because you've been there since 2007. Either that or I have Stockholm Syndrome. <laughs> uh, UCSF <laughs> is an incredible place to work. It's it's definitely been incredibly intellectually stimulating to be there. Yeah, I don't think you have Stockholm <laughs> Syndrome. I really don't. Um, <laughs> but I could be wrong there. Um, 
So you work for UCSF and we know that that's part of the the University of California system. And and I've talked in other podcasts with some of your other colleagues from other offices like Jeff Jackson, Reagan Robinson and Michael Carrier. So I know it's a big system. It's 10 campuses, five medical centers, three affiliated national labs. And one of the things that has become very evident to me is that you're all very different in terms of your size and your function. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured? Absolutely. So I guess one thing that I will say about UCSF um, in the sense that it's unique in the UC system because we're essentially a healthcare center and we do not have any undergraduates on campus. So that's just kind of one thing to keep in mind. Um, so our Office of Technology Management is located under the Innovation Ventures umbrella. Um, we have our own vice chancellor, Barry Selick. And I, I believe uh, Innovation Ventures was put together, I want to say four years ago, but I've been living in a bit of a fugue state lately. So what is time? <laughs> I think uh, we're all there, right? <laughs> we're all there a little bit, especially now. Um, so uh, Innovation Ventures is comprised of four branches of which the OTM is the largest. The other three are we have an alliance management group. Um, and their job is establishing and managing large programmatic alliances. I think you and I are going to talk a bit more about that later on in the program. Uh, we also have uh, two gap funding programs. Uh, it's the Catalyst Program and the Invent Fund, which was established very recently. We're in our first year of having the Invent Fund. And we also have the Entrepreneurship Center, um, which is essentially an educational resource for entrepreneurial faculty. So... Um, within the OTM, the OTM itself is also broken up into four separate functions. We have the licensing function, which is probably self-explanatory. We are the group that really manages the IP and does the business development and the out-licensing. We also have a new group, um, relatively new, I guess, since last year. We have an engagement and opportunity development group, and that group uh, is in charge of uh, assessing and prioritizing the technologies that we get in. They also do a lot of business development and outreach to the faculty, and they work on uh, special cases where um, before the project can really be licensed, it requires a little bit more of a business case that needs to uh, needs to be developed. So uh, those are two of our biggest groups. Then we also have the Strategic Alliances and Contracting Group, uh, and we have a, a person within that group who manages just our Parker and Biohub Alliances. We have a person managing the GSK Alliance, uh, and we have contracting in that group too. So our MTAs, our interinstitutionals, and our bailments um, are done by somebody who works in that group. And then, of course, we have our business administration unit with uh, patent prosecution and license compliance, government reporting, um, and accounting, income distribution, uh, which we share a little bit with uh, UCOP in Oakland. Um, it's, it's a very small group of incredibly hardworking, very talented people that we could not function without. Your office is quite a bit, and we're going to get into that a little bit. How many mm -hmm. people are you? I know you said you're small. How small are you? 
Uh, well, we're not, I, I think we're small compared to how much work we're doing, but <laughs> we're, we're staffed. We're not small. Um, there, I want to say there are about, we're supposed to have 23 or 24 FTEs within the OTM itself. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many people we have in innovation ventures total. Uh, but again, the OTM is by far the largest group within the innovation ventures. Got it. Yeah. And and I think uh, our listeners will just get a better handle for how um, maybe understaffed you are here in a second when we start talking about all that you guys have going on, because it's pretty significant. Um, but before we get there, let's talk about inventions and patents and licensing. Can you tell us a little bit on average how many inventions you say or would say are disclosed to your office a year? So uh, funny you should ask. Uh, so historically, we've been around 250, 260 per year. Uh, last year, we had a jump to 300. So that's in the last fiscal year. Uh, but our current numbers seem on track to probably exceed that because right now we're getting about a disclosure per day. Um, so our fiscal year started in July and we are at almost 60 disclosures. Wow. Yeah. And that is pretty consistent what I'm hearing from other guests that have from other tech transfer offices. They have been just getting an inordinate amount of disclosures. Um, the pandemic influx. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of it is maybe PIs having more time. They're not in the lab as much. Yeah, I think there's probably a number of different factors. I don't think there's any one in particular, but that's certainly a lot of disclosures. So given that number, what would you say on average you file on or maybe a percentage of what you file on? So historically, I think we filed on about 40 percent. Uh, and that does not take into account the fact that some of our disclosures are TRPs or copyrights. So you wouldn't normally file in those anyways. Uh, I guess if you take those out, it would be slightly higher than 40 percent. Yeah, that's a pretty significant number. What when yes. you Talking about then licensing, how many active licenses would you say you have have in a year? I would say it's not unusual to have five exclusive license negotiations to be active in any given year. Uh, currently, I think I'm at seven. Wow. Uh, but again, we just talked about how it's kind of been an exceptionally busy year and we are short staffed and there is the, the hiring freeze also due to COVID. Yeah, and I think that's common across a lot of offices that kind of hiring freeze, but that's a lot of license negotiations going on yeah, in the year. I've been very busy. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it makes the time go by faster. I don't know, which in this year may not be such a bad thing. Now, given that we we talked about your licensing and, and your patent numbers, what would you say your average patent royalty and fee income is per year? So I actually looked this up for you. Um, so that I could tell you exactly that in the last five years, our average has been about 30 and a half million. That's pretty significant. Um, that's a lot of money. It's adequate. <laughs> it's <laughs> adequate. Okay. Well, given that, what would you say, or given that number, I should say, what would you say your top five earning inventions are, uh, whether it's last year or in your time with UCSF? 
Well, it's interesting. Our a lot of our top five biggest earners are actually quite old, and they predate the existence of our office, which was not started until I believe 1995 is when UCSF OTM um, originated. So we have uh, the Hep B vaccine, which dates all the way back to 1981, and the bovine growth hormone, which dates all the way back to 1980. Um, some of our more recent hot earners in, in number three, we actually have the Arsenal license, uh, which you might have heard about, uh, and that covers novel receptors for ligand-dependent um, transcriptional regulation. That's, uh, that's a CRISPR-Cas9 technology that came out of Alex Marston's lab. Our number four, is something that came out of Dean Shepard's lab. And that's the antifibrotic agents that inhibit alpha V beta one integrin. And, and that was from the pliant IPO. And coming in hot at number <laughs> five, we have the non-MAM software. I had no idea what that was and I had to look it up, but apparently it's uh, software for modeling population pharmacokinetics. So I would imagine that's something big pharma is very excited about. So you um, mentioned before, I think it was a, a GSK alliance, and and I think that might be a good transition here to talk about corporate partners, because it, it sounds like you have quite a few. Can you talk about the corporate partners that you have at UCSF? Absolutely. And uh, I can definitely talk about these because there are press releases. So if you want to know more, you can just go ahead and read those. But we have 12 total corporate partners right now. We have six big alliances and six smaller alliances. Uh, the bigger alliances are the Immunoprofiler Cancer Data Consortium. We have the BMS Cell Gene RAN program. Of course, we have the Pfizer CTI, which we have had for a while now. Um, Genab V Alliance, we just did the GSK LGR did, uh, deal last year, and the J&J Quintic um, for the fellowships we did also last year as well. Uh, and I'm not going to go into details about the smaller alliances, but I'm probably going to talk about some of the more interesting ones later on in the program. Great. So would you say uh, having these corporate partners, have they led to more deals or maybe really differently structured deals in your view? I wouldn't say that it led to more deals than our one-off SRAs, for example. Um, the only thing different is that they have pre-negotiated licensing terms. And again, that's not in every case. Uh, we've had a lot of novel IP generated. We've gotten some partner-owned IP back from the program. So that's been interesting. And of course, there have been tens of millions of research dollars that have been spent, and it has led to UCSF gaining more programmatic alliances with both existing partners and with new partners. So in talking about your corporate partners, would you say they're research partners, commercialization partners, or, or both? Well, really, um, I think each partnership has the potential to be both. In the best case scenario, the research will lead to commercialization. Uh, the main reason for partnering with these corporations is to develop and commercialize early stage therapeutic assets. So we try to marry their drug development expertise to our biology and academic know-how. And what about philanthropic organizations? We hear a lot about them in the university context, whether it's the Gates Foundation, the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Um, I would imagine you have some of those organizations that are involved as, 
with your um, office as well. Uh, yes, absolutely. And of course, to different degrees, uh, there are different kinds of organizations and some have no strings attached while others have lots of strings attached. I think everyone knows that about foundations these days. Uh, more and more of them want to have more and more strings. Um, and in fact, this is why we now have someone working in our administrative group whose job it is to track these kinds of obligations to foundations because we realize that it's just something that's becoming really unwieldy. I would say that the main role of consortiums like the Parker Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy or PICE, as we call it, and the Biohub is to serve as a collaboratorium to accelerate scientific progress. In case of PICE, our faculty find the ecosystem and the collaboration system to be very valuable. And there have been startups and licenses, all of that information is in the public domain um, that have come out of it. Uh, now, Biohub is a more recent program, but I would say that our faculty really enjoy the access to facilities and resources that Biohub brings to bear. Uh, but there are a lot of obligations and strings attached, and these alliances require a lot of hands-on management, which is why I mentioned earlier on in the program that we actually have dedicated staff uh, whose job is to take care of these alliances. Interesting. And... We've talked a lot about licensing now um, and philanthropic organizations and looking back at some of these licensing transactions and partnerships, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have um, done differently? <laughs> That's a fairly open-ended question. <laughs> yep. um, <laughs> but I think the most important thing is to make sure that the language of the agreement clearly captures what the party's intention is. Because BD and alliance managers come and go, but the agreements are a long-term commitment. Uh, I know it's often tempting to kick the can down the road, but ambiguity can really come back to bite you and put your partner in relationships at risk. Overall, I'd say we've done a good job mitigating these risks. Also, I would add that you should always try to get alliance management funding because managing these alliances is a lot of hard work. And if you want them to be successful, you should think about developing the alliance management arm of tech transfer. Yeah, I think that's really good, good advice. Now, I want to talk a little bit about success stories in terms of successful technologies and startups. And and I'm thinking maybe some more of your recent ones um, for our listeners. I'm sure many of them are aware that UCSF is the birthplace of biotech and that it it nurtured innovators that went on to start things like Genentech and Chiron, which is now Novartis and a bunch of other industry giants. So really just a very, very impressive track record. And I know UCSF continues to nurture this really bold spirit of entrepreneurship that enables your researchers and clinicians to pursue pursue all kinds of opportunities for delivering health. So with kind of that background, can you give us some of your more recent success stories? Well, first of all, thank you uh, for acknowledging that. And we, we do our best. Uh, and yes, this is, this is the, the best part, I think, to talk about our successes. So um, I'm happy to do that. So some of our successful partnerships, uh, now I... I'm not going to name the, the particular partner in this case, but I am going to talk a little bit about what we've done with this partner. So we have received about $14 million in funding, in research funding from them. Uh, there were six projects uh, that we generated IP across. Now, the interesting thing here is that three IND clinical assets came out of these programs, and they were in clinical trials at UCSS. 
So that is not something that you see happen very often at an academic institution. And I think that's really one of the main reasons to have these kinds of alliances in place. Um, now, for a variety of reasons, uh, the partner ended up passing on two of those clinical candidates, but one is actually still in active clinical trials at UCSS, so that's really cool. Uh, and all of these were first in, in class drugs. And again, so this does not happen very often. The average cost of generating an IND at pharma would be $30 million. But we were able to generate three of them in $14 million in funding. And I think that's really why uh, industry is interested in working with academic institutions like UCSF, because they really see the value that we bring. And the other great thing that came out of this partnership is that the partner has decided to extend um, and put in another programmatic alliance in place. So I think that's another metric of success for us internally is whether our partners are interested in extending or putting new alliances in place. Yeah, congratulations. That sounds like a, it worked out really, really well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, I'm also going to talk about something that I mentioned earlier, which is the, the J&J Quintig deal, which we did with Janssen and our sister campus at UC Berkeley. And this is something that uh, our director of alliance management, Peter Katsonis, likes to call a mega deal. <laughs> I think uh, we're moving more towards doing these mega deal types of deals where you really want to uh, maximize and bring to bear as many resources that you have. Uh, so the, the interesting and the novel thing about this program is that we're going to be hiring former Google, former Yahoo fellows. So these are people who have already made a lot of money and they're really just doing this out of pure love of science because we're going to be giving them access to UCSF health records so that they can test their hypotheses using our data. And so in the end, there's opportunity for really novel IP and also NUCO formation to come out of this. Uh, and we got uh, almost $60 million for the two campuses. We will be hiring up to 20 fellows who are all going to be UCSF or UC Berkeley employees. And they're all going to have UC mentors. So this is something that is very early stage, but we're super excited about this. I think that qualifies as a mega deal. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was it was a good time working on that deal. I actually got to work on that myself. So I'm very familiar with how difficult that all was to wrangle. Yeah, congratulations, because you don't hear about too many deals of that magnitude coming out of university tech transfer offices. But I will say J&J &J were fantastic to work with, and we are really looking forward to working with them on this. Awesome. So one of our smaller alliances that we have that has turned into a really interesting strategic partnership is with Shang Pharma. Shang Pharma is uh, a combination VC-CRO that's based in China. They also have offices in San Francisco. Um, their CRO arm is Camp Partner, and the Shang Pharma is the VC arm. So we've had the collaboration for three years now, um, and they have complementary chemistry expertise in drug discovery, assay development, and antibody discovery platform. They have selected six projects to work on with various UCSF PIs, and we have had IP filed on five of them so far, and the sixth, sixth one is still in early stage right now. 
And there are three new codes that are currently being spun out. And one of them is actually being funded directly by Shane Pharma. So I think that's another example of a really successful alliance for us. Yeah, that's another really good one. How about um, some startups? I I know one in particular um, related to ADHD has been in the news um, fairly recently, actually, if you want to talk about that one. Right. You're talking about Akili. They came out of Adam Ghazali's lab at UCSF, uh, just managed by one of my colleagues, Kathy wilson Edel. So if anyone wants more information, you should contact her. Um, uh, well, it's it's a really cool technology. Uh, it's really the first prescription treatment to ever be delivered through a video game. So how cool is that? Given uh, a lot of the patients who suffer from uh, ADHD, a lot of them tend to be boys. And I have three nephews that are 12, 11, and 10, and all they, they want to do is play video games. I think that's uh, that's a pretty awesome way of delivering a treatment. Yeah, so we're pretty excited about that one. Um, now, some other ones. Um, there, there are so many startups coming out of UCSF, but I, I will highlight, I think, some of the more recent successes that we had. So a very recent success is Principia Biopharma. Uh, we actually did the initial license back in 2009. It was the first exclusive license that I ever negotiated solo. It was baby's first license. So uh, this is a startup that is based on the work of Jack Taunton at UCSF, and it was just acquired by Sanofi for $3.6 billion. Not bad for your first license. Not too shabby. Uh, well, it's really great from Principia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so they've been developing covalent BTK inhibitors, which is something that at the time was considered a crazy idea. Nobody wanted to touch covalent um, inhibitors for anything. and uh, so it's pretty exciting to see them succeed like this. Uh, another one of our successes is Pioneer Immunotherapeutics, which came out of Max Cromwell's lab. And they just announced this summer that they've entered into an exclusive option with Gilead to be acquired after raising $78 million in venture funding. Uh, an oldie but a goodie is Intellikine, um, which was founded by Kayvon Shokad based on his extensive work with kinase inhibitors. And that one got acquired by Takeda in 2012. And one of our compounds is in ongoing clinical trials right now, which is always very satisfying to see. And I think a lot of people have heard about Arsenal Bio. We talked about it a little bit when we talked about our successes. They recently came out of stealth mode with a Gigantics $85 million Series A. Uh, and Arsenal is actually one of the startups that came out of our relationship with the Parker Institute. So that's probably worth mentioning as well. Yeah, $85 million in a Series A, that's pretty gosh darn good, I would say. Not too shabby at all. No, definitely not. So, well, given all this um, success and everything that you have going on, I'm sure that your office has some challenges. Every office, uh, everyone that I talk to from a tech transfer office, there's, there's always challenges. What would you say are the two biggest challenges uh, for your office? Well, we don't have any challenges. No, none. None whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> None whatsoever. I'm just kidding. Of course we do. Uh, I think um, it's probably not going to surprise you to hear our biggest challenges are funding and space. Uh, we have so much work and we really need to grow and the university is having a hard time keeping up with our growth. And of course, real estate in San Francisco, it's a problem. Yeah, I think in, in California in general, it's it's a problem. Yeah. 
the funding's not a big surprise. I, I get that from a, a lot of guests. And and um, I know some of your colleagues and some of the UC, other UC offices I've talked to, space is an issue for them them as well, too. How about switching gears and talking about organizations that are helpful for you and your colleagues in your office? And I'm curious to know um, what value you think they might add. And here I'm talking about organizations like Autumn, LES, and Bio, for example. I think different organizations offer different value. It really depends on what your goals are. And I choose which meetings I might attend um, based on those goals. Of course, Autumn has tremendous value in advocacy in addition to providing educational and networking resources for the tech transfer community. For me, attending BIO or LES is more about relationship building and maintenance. Uh, It's a much more straightforward business development function, although certainly there are also educational opportunities to be gleaned there as well. And what about things like credentialing? That's a hot topic lately about things like a registered technology transfer professional. Do you think it's important for people to have that designation? Do you think it makes a difference? What's, What's your view on that? Personally, I don't think it makes a difference in this field. Like in most other fields, it would be your experience and expertise that counts most, not additional letters after your name. But at least that's my take on that. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. So Ellen, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they had an opportunity to have three wishes granted for their office or have a vision realized, what would that be? What a tricky question, Lisa. <laughs> and I'm not giving you more than three wishes because I've had a few people ask me if they could have five and oh, I've said no. Ah, so harsh. I know, very harsh. Well, first of all, I'd like our office to be as recognized internally within UCSS as it has always been recognized externally by our peers. Uh, as we've discussed today, UCSF has been doing really interesting really innovative deals for a long time, but somehow that message gets lost in the noise of internal politics and faculty don't always appreciate the amount of work that we put into it to make things run smoothly because a lot of what we do is really invisible work. Yeah, I I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. My second wish would be for all of us to have sufficient functional space. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like you guys are really crammed in your space. Oh, you have no idea. We have people doubling up in cubicles right now, or we were obviously prior to the pandemic. And so given our current situation, it seems even more important if we're ever expected to really go back to work, it would be nice to have space. Yeah, I think in a post-COVID world, that's going to be kind of a mandatory requirement. (laughs) I, you know, given the limitations of uh, space in San Francisco, I imagine we're probably just going to be working from home a lot more. But that is, I've, I've always wished for us to have more better space. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So for my third wish, I think I would want our budget to reflect our contributions to the community, both at UCSF and the general public. Uh, that goes beyond simply financial metrics, so which is probably something all tech transfer offices wish at some point, I would imagine. Uh, for example, tech transfer contributes to the economic system with company formation and job creation in a way that current metrics really do not measure, um, as well as the alliance and research dollars that we bring into the university by fostering these ongoing relationships and cor- corporate partners that we talked about earlier. 
Well, I think those are three really good wishes. And, and I really hope at least some of them come to fruition. At least hopefully the space one will in the near future. Good luck with that one. Thank you so much. <laughs> there you go. Well, Ellen, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Sure. They can send me an email. I'm at Ellen Katz. That's Katz with an S, not Katz with a Z at ucsf.edu. Great. Thanks so much again, Ellen. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.